0: mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is
1: Live from the Mecca, Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where institutionalized religion meets Jesus Christ face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Too much to cover to mess around with anything else right now, so let's pray and get right to it. I think you're gonna be, it's going to be a good one uh, with information on our topic. Father, we love you and seek you. We thank you for loving us so much, this world that you sent your only begotten Son to uh, give his life, die for us, reconcile us to you, Lord, and we thank you for it. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand these topics. Forgive us where we are errant, and help us to uh, walk in spirit and in truth. Bless our uh, volunteers and their staff and people who uh, help with the ministry through prayer and in all the different ways that they're able. We love you and we worship you and seek you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost the last show exploring the question of when does the Bible say Jesus would return? It's been 12 weeks. Quite honestly, we could do seven or eight more shows, delve deeper into the minutia, but we've probably already done enough a So I thought I'd try to hit on some of the major points provided by Jesus Apostles, that support the idea that the Bible says Jesus was going to return within 40 years of his death and resurrection. Whether you realize it or not, all of the New Testament writers fully expected, taught, and encouraged the believers who trusted them in that day to believe his return, the second coming, was on its way and would happen within 40 years or so of his death. If you um want to avoid this fact,' You're, and if you read the New Testament and say that's not true, you have absolutely blinded yourself without question. And tonight', we'll, uh, I'm going to show you some examples of how. We've given you a lot of in-depth stuff talking about different ideas and subjects. Some of it is up to debate. What they taught is certainly uh, not up to debate. You can't get around it. The fact is, We're going to prove it through scripture through kind of some rapid fire examples. But most scholars agree that the apostles taught he was coming. That is true. That is true. If you are convinced that it's true, we have to honestly ask ourselves, why did they teach this? And then we have to ask what made the apostles think and teach this and uh, that Jesus was coming back soon who gave them that impression jesus did and so then we have to ask if that's not true if the apostles were wrong in their estimation of what jesus had taught them and they misunderstood jesus and his teachings on the subject and then they went and they misled people how can we trust anything else they wrote we can't Um, I would go so far to say if they were wrong about the time of Jesus' return, we can't trust anything else that they said. And that's really radical, but uh, let me back that up by saying they weren't wrong. They were not wrong. They were dead right. So let's start off with James, and then the writer of Hebrews, then John, then Peter, and Paul, if we can get to him. James, there are five Jameses, if that's the proper English, in the Bible, And this one, the author of James, was believed to be the half-brother of the Lord. And he was uh, martyred by pretty good evidence by 62 A.D. So his epistle uh, was written well before this date, or at least, you know, a day before the date. Let's let his words do the talking. I won't do it. And remember, James wrote to the believers at that time. You ready? Emphasis mind, James 5, 7. He writes to the believers at that time, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. So there's a reference there to to, uh, uh, agrestic, agrarian uh, farming. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one another against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Now, that line, uh, draweth nigh in the King James, how it's translated, it's translated is at hand in the ESV and, uh, and is near in the NASB. So James was either leading them in truth and they ought to have trusted his words or he was misleading them and they shouldn't have trusted his words. What are you going to believe? I'm going to believe James and the context with it was written. Okay, the writer of Hebrews. Forgetting the dogma, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We, many people believe it was Paul. Could have been, but scholars think that the book was... Uh, the. The book was written in 67 to 69 A.D. And we've been going through Hebrews on Sundays for a couple years. Well, not a couple of years, about 18 months now in uh, our afternoon uh, meet. And I mean, it is all about hanging on. And the whole thing was written to encourage Jewish converts to hang on to faith in Christ and to get them to realize that he was faithful <clears throat> to his promises to them. Promises that were better than anything that was in the law that they came out of, okay? Perhaps the whole point and purpose of the writer can be summarized in chapter 10, verses 22 to 39. Now it sounds like a lot, but it's not. Here the writer is instructing them on what to do, how to live in the face of persecution, of failing faith amidst all this persecution and trouble, and what to look for in the future, their future, okay? So let me read it. Hebrews 10, 22, begin at verse 22. The writer says, Let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together keep getting to, gathering together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching now you notice that he says as you see the day that's a singular day there this is not the, this is the same day that Jesus says in Matthew 24 No man knows the day or the hour. He says, but of that day, it's a singular day. And this is what the writer of Hebrews, he says, we see the day approaching, okay? We continue on. He says, and this is interesting for people who think once saved, always saved. He tells those believers there, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, and that sin would be losing faith, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for "...of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries." That phraseology pictures the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy-eight AD perfectly. He says, listen, if you, co- w- if, you, if you walk from faith and go back and embrace the law, there's no more sacrifice of sins and you face judgment and fiery indignation. That's picturing what the end would look like. Then he says, He that despised Moses' law died without the mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite the spirit of grace. In other words, if you leave the grace and you go back to the law, you've trodden the Son of God underfoot. You've done a terrible thing. For we know him that has said vengeance belong to me I will recompense saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. So he's warning them. He's coming in judgment. Don't fall back into the old Jewish ways. Continue on in your faith with Christ. And then he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the the writer is saying, hang on. Okay, we're almost done. He says, but call to remembrance the former days in which, after you were illuminated, after you had vision and saw and were born again, you endured a great fight of afflictions at that time. Partly while you were made a gazing stock by reproaches and afflictions, and partly when you became companions of them who were also that, treated that way, he says. For you had compassion on me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, and, and, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And then he says, For yet a little while, And he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Did you hear the promise the writer of Hebrews made to those saints in that day as he's encouraging them to stay the course and hang on to faith and don't fall back? He that shall come will come and won't delay. Okay, now where it says for a little while, he that shall come will come, the word little in the Greek there, where it's translated into us, little while, it can't mean 2,000 years later. It meant a little while he's coming back, second coming. Why? The word is micron. That's what it is. Very short time. In fact, if you look at the NASB, the translation of the passage is for in a very little while. Micron cannot mean 2,000 years later. It means soon. Okay. Uh, and he says, now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them who believe in the saving of the soul. Pretty clear. I trust the writer of Hebrews. I trust he knew what he was talking about. I trust that his words were dead on, that those who were reading those words at that time could, could say, I trust that. They could look to it. They could believe that in a micron amount of time he was coming. It was shortly gonna to come to pass. Hang on and promises would be fulfilled and rewards would be given to those who listened. To read it today and say it applies to us is just, it's just laughable. All right, how about John? 1 John 2, 17, 18. The beloved, listen, who wrote Revelation. Remember, John wrote Revelation. Well, he also authored the epistles, and the gospel. Listen to what he says. First John uh, 2, 17, 18. And the world passes away. The age, their world, the whole Jewish system under the law was passing away. And the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And what is the will of God? Just to know, John 6, to believe on the Son who he has sent. Right? Okay? He says, little children... It is the last time. If I'm not mistaken, I didn't check this, but that word time there is the Greek word for hour. The last hour. So, little children, it is the last hour. And he appeals to all the signs and prophecies of the Antichrist here that had been provided to them beforehand. And he says, we're in the last hour. I'm appealing to what we have talked about and been taught about Antichrist. He says, and as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists. He says, we've been warned that the Antichrist is coming. The, the hour is here. There are many around us, Okay whereby we know that it is the last hour." Okay, that's, that's John in, in 1 John saying it. That is completely fitting to that time, to that age, to Nero and his numerological identifier of 666 given by John in Revelation, the book that he also authored from the symbols given to him by the angel. John is saying, look around. The Antichrists are present here. The last hour is upon us, a warning. Later in the same chapter, John writes at verse 28, and now little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. As stated before, we always have to ask when we read scripture, the W's. Who was the writer speaking to first and foremost? What was he trying to impart to them at that time? Why was he writing what he was writing? Where and when did it take place? Again, Christians today love to read the passages and assign them to our day, all the while ignoring these W questions, which clearly present us with context about what was being said. Nowhere, as I've said before, and I know you're probably tired of hearing it, does God say these verses were written for us today. The New Testament does not tell us that the apostles wrote to them. That's the context. We read them, we grow in faith by learning spiritual lessons from them, but we don't take them and assign them to our day as if he was writing for us right now, he was writing to them. We use the Bible, but this was literally applied to them. Okay? So obviously John was writing to encourage believers that in that day to abide in Christ, and when he appears, that they would have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming, which he says, we will see, all right? All based in and around their standing with the Lord and when he was expected to return. Finally, we have yet another evidence in John instilling hope and expectation into the hearts of the readers of his epistles at that time that they would be there to witness his return. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, Now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The W's, who was he talking to? What were they thinking when they read this? Just exactly what he said, we shall see him. We don't know what we are and what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. He's encouraging them the second coming to look and that they will be transfigured, transformed, whatever, into the glory the same. Was John blowing smoke or was he correct in his encouragement? I would suggest he was totally correct. And if he was wrong, toss the Bible aside. Let's consider Peter. We'll begin with a passage that's vague. It's not gonna be on the nose but we discover an interesting support in it. 1 Peter 5, 4. It says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, this is what Peter writes, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. That's what he says. From this passage, I think we can see that Peter believed that many of the people reading his words would be alive when the chief shepherd would appear. The Bible often speaks of believers receiving glory at Christ's return, of receiving a crown at that time, at his appearing. And Peter tells those who are reading his words that they would receive a crown of glory at his appearing. We agree with that. What didn't Peter say there? What he didn't say is that they would be resurrected, okay? Which is also tied to Jesus' return, resurrection, Therefore, Peter was not speaking, not speaking of resurrection, infers that they would be alive when he came. If he was talking about him not coming for a long time, he would have talked about receiving a crown and resurrection. But he, and he would have written, so when you're looking for him, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you will be resurrected and receive a crown. And we could say, oh, he's talking about in the future. But he just says you're going to receive a crown, meaning you're not going to need to be resurrected because you're going to be alive when he comes. Now, I know that's a lot to see, but that's what, that's, you can take that from that, all right? Peter actually opens that chapter up saying the following. The elders which are among you I exhort, who I'm also an elder and a witness unto the sufferings of Christ and also, speaking of himself, a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Going back to our lesson of last week or the week before, that shall is mellow, okay? And it means is about to be revealed. Um, The word cannot be used unless Peter and God were wrong if applied to our day and age. Mellow could not be there, all right? But it is. And so it could not mean 2,000 years later. It wouldn't even mean 100 years later. It would mean about to, And that's what Peter meant. With judgment being tied to Jesus' return, Peter also wrote, speaking of Christ, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Peter knew from the signs all around him that the judgment was falling and the Lord was ready, which is why he used that term. Of course, 1 Peter 4, 7 says, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Obviously, the end of all things does not relate to the natural material world as the frenetic futurists froth on about. Uh, the end of all things is relative to the nation of Israel, typified by the coming judgment and destruction of all that their age represented. Now, this is important. Peter didn't always teach the end of all things is at hand, okay? So we have something to compare Peter's writings to. He hasn't been blammering on about this throughout all of his writings, okay? Or through all of the times he's quoted. In the book of Acts, right after Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter is preaching and he's surrounded by a crowd at a gate called Beautiful. This is what he says to the Jews who gathered there after witnessing him perform a healing of a lame man. Peter says in Acts 3, 19, 21, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, listen, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, that's a lot to talk about, but let me try. There's a great debate, first of all, of what restitution of all things means there in Acts 3, 19 through 21, and um, uh, spoken of by the mouth of prophets since the world began. For instance, the LDS say this restitution was really a restoration of all things in which Joseph Smith restored everything back to the earth. Biblically, this claim is untenable. It does not hold water, okay? Here, Peter tells us that the heavens would receive Christ and retain him until this restoration or uh, restitution occurs, all right? We can debate the restitution of all things phrase here until the cows come home. But when we take all the other explainable evidence in the Bible, I am of the opinion that the restitution of all things Peter says has to happen before Jesus leaves heaven to return. And it had to happen before 70 AD because later in 1 Peter, Peter suggests that the end is near. It's at hand. It's on its way. So he first says, don't worry, the restitution of all things has to happen. Jesus won't be let out of heaven to come back until that occurs. And then he says, the end is near. And so we have evidence that somewhere in that gap, the restitution of all things occurred. Therefore, the restitution of all things had to have happened prior to 70 AD. I suspect that the line has reference to the law of Moses and judgment being passed down upon the nation of Israel for disobedience. That's one part. And I would also suggest that the restitution of all things is the return of the uh, Garden of Eden state where there was pureness in the hearts of people Uh, but this was now due because of Christ's blood, the second Adam, and that was a restitution of how everything started, but now it was spiritually uh, being lived by the people and not uh, physically. One final note on this passage from Peter, where he assures his listeners that the time was not at hand in Acts 3. Remember, this is what he said at that time, speaking of Jesus, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Stay with me. According to Peter, all the prophets since the world began had spoken of this restitution, okay? At this, we have to ask ourselves if all the prophecy of the Old Testament was fulfilled. In Luke 21, 22, Jesus, in describing the end of Jerusalem, says, for these, day, day, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Okay? If all was fulfilled that was written, we can say that all prophecies about the restitution of all things were fulfilled too. And since Jesus would return when the restitution of all things would occur, we can say that his return was at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's a long line of thinking. Uh, Check it out, replay it if it helps. I don't know if it will. I'm sorry, due to time and information, I don't think I'm going to go to Paul. But before we go to the phone lines, we'll open them up 801 590 8413, 801 590 8413. There's one more question that pops up by futurists on the subject of Jesus returning in 70 AD. Listen closely to this. It's going to warp your mind. I received this by revelation. I did? It was a revelation last week after the show. I, I had taught, someone called in and asked about, is Satan bound? And I walked off the set and boom! I, I had the revelation. I'll explain how in just a second just to get you guys all saying he's lost his mind. All right. Uh, The question that pops up is it's always in connection with the millennium question we touched on last week. And it is, if Jesus came in 70 AD, is Satan now bound? That's the question. We had a caller last week uh, ask about this, and I wasn't sure of the answer until I had the revelation. So, this is where my problem lies. I contend that the term millennium does not mean 1,000 literal years, but that the phrase 1,000 years in Scripture is representative of all time. Like God is the God of uh, 1,000 cattle on 1,000 hills or whatever the quote is. It's not just 1,000 cattle on the 1,000 hills. It's, it's representative of all hills and all cattle. I also maintain that Jesus' reign began back at his ascension was evidenced by judgment falling on Jerusalem, and that the reign continues today with our King ruling, reigning from on high over a spiritual kingdom. And there were not; we are not waiting for a literal one thousand year period for Him to come and reign. It's a spiritual reigning over our hearts and the people's hearts. The trouble with my view is that Revelation twenty says, and He laid hold on the dragon that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan and bound him a thousand years. Okay, so what happens is if my position is correct, people will then say, well, if it's correct, Sean, has Satan been bound? And then it's a great question. Uh, My mom used to, to, I don't know where she pulled this stuff. She was LDS and, and, but she used to say, you know, Sean, someday God's gonna come And he's going to have this big chain and he's going to come and he's going to throw Satan down into the hell. And he's going to chain the doors up and lock it. And he'll be tied up in there for a thousand years. No one will do anything wrong. It'll be a beautiful, beautiful time. And so that imagery in my head has always been palpable. And and I I took her explanation to heart in in the face of it. But the trouble is my mom believed the fulfillment of Revelation 20 was literal and not spiritually applied, okay? So the question, if the millennium is a whole span of time and not a literal thousand years, and if this span of time began back in 70 AD, has Satan been bound? Looking around the world, we would have to say, no siree, Bob, Mr. McCraney, you are incorrect. He has not been bound, and therefore your premise fails, But maybe we have not understood what scripture means when it says Satan would be bound for the span of that time. Let me explain. In Isaiah 25, 8, we're blessed with a prophecy that says, he, meaning Jesus, will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord will wipe away tears from off all faces and rebuke of his people he shall take away from off all the earth the Lord has spoken it. Where did death come from and why? Going back to the Garden of Eden, where there was no sin, partly because there was no law except one, and there was no disease or death, right? Okay, was Satan there? Yes, Satan was there. What was Satan doing? He was tempting. Adam and Eve. Did Satan have any power in that place? None whatsoever. But Satan was able to tempt Okay? Once he was able to get Adam and Eve to fall, Satan obtained power and became, for lack of a for lack of a better term, the author and finisher of death. He brought death into this world and he was the prince of death. He controlled death until Christ's victory on the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross and through resurrection? He conquered death. All death, spiritual, physical, he conquered it. And listen, the power that Satan has over death was lost completely and forever. It was bound. He he was bound in that area. He had no control anymore. He He lost the battle. Since Christ and his victory, Satan has absolutely no claim to power over men. He lost the battle when Christ was victorious, okay? Sin has been utterly abolished, except the sin of unbelief and failing to love by Christ, the second Adam, who had utter victory over Satan and his power on earth and beyond. So he is back to where he started. He is bound in his power over us in death. He doesn't have any power there, but he's still able to tempt. He's still going about like he did in the Garden of Eden and he's tempting holding no power over death. For this reason, well before going to the cross, Jesus says in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, suggesting that his power as prince of the world was lost or bound as it were. Paul says in Colossians 2, 15, listen to this, talking about Christ, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly. It's like he mocked them, triumphing over them in it. Second Peter 1 10 says, but is now speaking of Christ made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. Did you read that? He has abolished death, spiritual, physical, and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Hebrews 2 4 is profound. It says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same. He took, Christ took on a body of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. Then 1 Peter 3.22, speaking of Jesus said, he has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Angels, authorities and powers, that includes Satan, subject to him. He had the victory. So the, 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 the power is bound. That's what it means, bound. The thousand years is represented of all time and the power is bound. Yet we note that Satan continues to tempt. We see sin going on, right? But there's no power unto death. In the Garden of Eden, Satan, Satan was able to tempt. What was he tempting Adam and Eve with? To eat of the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, uh, which they were told not to eat. What did the... Fruit symbolize it, a number of things. Rebellion, some say, self will over God's will, succumbing to the temptation uh, uh, rather than living by God's promises. In the end, that fruit represented lack of faith. God, you said this? Satan is saying that? Mm, I trust Satan. I trust my will. Lack of faith. That's what it was. The fruit of unbelief. Okay? So I would suggest that Satan, though powerless, is allowed to continue in the same work that he was doing in the in the garden. To unbelievers, it's to keep them in chains, to keep them blind and in the dark, to cause them to love the darkness more than the light. Are they sinning only because they don't believe? It is unbelief that gets somebody sent to hell. No other sin, the sin of unbelief, because sin has been taken care of. In other words, Satan's temptations to not believe thwart salvation by getting as many People as possible to experience continued separation from God here and hereafter in hell and in the lake of fire. He also tempts believers. Why? As a means to render us ineffective, to get us to redirect, to get us off track of faith, to darken the light around us. And the ultimate aim is to get us to be fruitless to not produce fruits of love, which the father seeks of those to bring him glory. I also believe he seeks to snatch believers and bring them into captivity in their flesh, which renders them ineffective, hoping to drag some of them into the darkness, if possible, to give God as few true children as possible. So will Satan in his efforts to either keep unbelievers in the dark or render believers unfruitful, and ineffective, have victory? Never, it will never have victory. Christ had the victory. He has already lost. He's already lost. And his power over physical and spiritual death are bound by the permanent victory of Christ, who will in the end have total and utter victory, reconciling all to him in the end in some way or another. And we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. How did I get the revelation? Well, it's a way we get revelation today. We have a man, he read the Bible, I'm not sure, about maybe a year ago, maybe not less. First time through. Great lover of God. He came up and he explained it just like that. That's how I got the revelation. And when he did, I was like, that's remarkable. All the pieces came together and I realized it didn't have to do with tenure in the church. It didn't, he hasn't gone to theology school. He has the spirit of God in him. He read the word, he listened to the presentation. He said, Sean, this is what it is. Boom, and then I went to scripture and I tested the hypothesis, the revelation. Was it a bad burrito or was it true? And then I see he's had the victory. It's done. And then I see the revelation was real. The Holy Spirit talking to another person who shares something. And that's why pastors are not these supreme beings who think they have all the answers. Everybody has the same spirit and of God. And we learn and grow from each other. And it's not this, this popish power that we have standing on the pulpit and teaching. And our word is, this is how it is. We learn and engage in the body of Christ. All our members, you see. Okay. Uh, we've got a lot of phone calls. We're going to go to, uh, first, uh, we've opened up the phones. Tony, Eric, LaVon, hang on. Uh, but we want to show you this spot now. I would be doing the Lord and every viewer a disservice if I said Mormonism is Christian, because it's a lie. American evangelical Christianity. We're gonna go after its politicking. We're gonna go after its demands. We're gonna go after its culture. We're going to go after its doctrine relative to what the Bible says. I do not believe any Christian has the right to demand that another believer receive such man-made terms or creeds, or demands us to receive anything else. So I'm not going to get into a war with with other believers over doctrine. I'm not gonna do it. That is the opposite of what we're told to do. We're told to love, but think and go to God and open up your scripture and search and let's try to figure this out together and let's cast off anything that is not biblical. In the end, we hope this couple will be able to produce a little baby we call Truth. 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 That's a great passage. Thanks, Cassidy, for that work. Um, Listen, uh, that was me on the guitar, by the way. Just kidding. Uh, Let's go to Tony in San Bruno, California. Tony, you're on Heart of the Matter. Tony? Yes,
2: hello. Yeah, yeah. Is it Sean? It is. Uh, You're not putting me on the air, right?
1: No, you're not on the air. (laughs) Okay. You are! You're on the air! (laughs)
2: Listen, uh, the reason why I'm calling, and I'm so excited I, I finally talked to you. I'm a Samoan. I, I used to be the active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I uh, resigned uh, as of last week, my wife and I, and 11 of our eight of our children, and three of our grandchildren. Whoa! Yes, so uh, I've been trying, I've been dying trying to, to get a hold of you and talk to you about it and and uh i thank you thank you for for all that you have done um you make me see the light and so it's my wife i was called as the uh, uh high council I, I was a high council and uh, the second counselor in the bishopric wow. here in california for the ysa warrant um so um, my state president was really shocked when uh, I went in and told him that uh, I no longer believe the church. Wow. And um, he was really taken by it, and he tried to talk me to stay, and I told him, I, I no longer have the, the testimony of the church." And I also told him, I say, "It's not fair for the wife A, that uh, I can pretend that the church is true, knowingly that I don't believe the church is true. So I think this is uh, its best for me and my family just uh, you know to walk away and uh, you know and trying to be uh, good human beings and you know and try to live our lives daily and be happy. We are so happy, are extremely happy <laughs> with the way things is.
1: That is so beautiful, Tony. Our, our audience, I don't know if you could hear them, they are applauding for you and your family. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, all active LDS members in Utah.
2: Yeah. I just yeah. got transferred. My wife and I transferred from Utah to here. We've been here four years. My wife was a state young women's president in North Salt Lake, and I was the first counselor in the bishop in one of the wards in the, in the North Salt Lake. Huh. And uh, when I came here, I got called as a high councilman. I about a, a couple weeks ago, I just got called as the uh, second counselor in the YSA ward. And that's when I turned down the calling, and I told him, uh, sorry, I, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I've been telling so long, and uh, I can't be, uh, you know, to be fooled by, you know, fool everybody. But, uh,
1: it's a brave move, Tony. I'm looking at... Yeah, other... so,
2: yeah we're going to be there. We're going to be there in, in Salt Lake uh, in December. Uh, I would like to come my family and uh, meet you and uh, you know and try to find a church here we, we're glad to support you and whatever you need and uh, you know uh, get to know you and, uh, and we go from there
1: i look forward to that greatly tony please please uh, be in contact with us i look forward to meeting you thanks okay. for thanks for your courage tony
2: yeah all righty sean we'll see you in tall Okay.
1: okay bye bye Pray for uh, Tony and his family. They're going to need it, uh, both wherever they live, and then especially coming to Salt Lake. But more and more this is happening, and that is why the LDS Church is doing some of the things they're doing uh, recently. Look at the, the truth is not in the church. It's not in the LDS Church or Catholic Church or at Campus or at Calvary Chapel. The truth can be taught there, and you can learn truths there, but you can also learn falsehoods. And, and so the truth is in the Spirit, and it's confirmed by the Word of God. And it's your individual relationship with God that's gonna matter in the end. So that's kind of the message, you know, they all have problems, they're all messed up. When someone leaves Mormonism, that's a major move because they get a, quite a grip on you and you become a Mormon instead of a Christian. And someone wrote to me the other day, I know many of you have heard this, but if you remove Christ from Mormonism, you still have Mormonism. You know, it still will thrive, it still goes on. If you move Christ from true Christianity, you have nothing. True Christianity, you have nothing. You can remove Christ from uh, Christian churches, and the Christian churches just carry on the same. But you cannot remove Christ from an individual and have them be a Christian. Remember that. Let's go on to Eric in New York. Eric, you're on Heart of the Matter. Eric? Hello? Hey, you're on the air. Oh. oh. Hi,
3: John.
1: Hi. I'm
3: from Peru. Yes, last uh, week... I um, I asked you a question about the uh, 144,000, and you said that they were Christian Jews, right? No idea. So,
1: translation?
3: My question was uh, were they virgin, like the Revelation Church?
1: Uh Eric, say your question really slowly.
2: Okay. Uh, last week, I
3: asked you about 144000 Oh, yeah. And, and you said that they were Christian Jews. So my question was, um, were they
1: Christian also? Like the Revelation says? Anyone? Oh, are you talking about, uh, are you talking about, uh... Our whole audience is wagering about, Eric, do me a favor. I'm sorry. We have kind of a, we actually have a bad connection. Just email me your question detailed and we'll try to answer it on the air next week. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for watching, Eric. We love you.
3: No I love you too. I wrote it down. I wrote it down. So maybe you can mention it today.
1: Okay. Sounds good.
3: All right, Sean. Thanks.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. I wish I had a better ear for dialect, I I don't. Let's go to Levon. Levon? Brother Sean. Whoa! How
3: you doing, how you doing?
1: You just blew my shorts to Cuba, I'm doing fine. Well,
3: good to hear it, good to hear it. Uh, Got a few things I'd like to share, if you would indulge me. How many more callers you got to go? A A lot.
1: A lot. Doggone Lavant, just give me one quickly. We try to keep the show moving because there's so many things to discuss.
3: Yes, yes. Well, then I'll give you a poem and cover some other things that are on, on other shows. How's like that? Okay, good. Okay, it's uh, back in 1993 when I'd kind of grown tired of Mormonism and uh, actually I had grown sick of the whole prophecy of the, of the end of the world and. Seemed like all the extremist nuts wanted to take my future away from me. <laughs> I wanted to uh, to write down what I felt at the time, and it was a song. But I think I'm going to just, you know, leave out the uh, leave out the, the the chorus and just give you the verses and see what you think. Ready?
1: Only on Heart of the Matter. Go for it, Levan. Okay.
3: They say the end of time is near. I must confess the only thing I fear are the people who are looking for the end because they're gonna find it for us all my friend they've all decided that it's over god's gonna save us in the middle of the night and only then will they love or learn to love each other and armageddon's gonna prove them right now that they've said all their goodbyes i wonder if they stop to realize those who believe are gonna see it will become what they believe it to be it seems like such a bitter way to go but jesus loves me this i know i hope there was a reason for my birth i think i'm gonna miss you mother earth they say the end is coming soon when the sun is black and bloody is the moon i guess no nobody will be saved there'll be hurricanes and tidal waves but these things are only meant warning science to say, if you want to save mankind, we've got the power to rearrange a better future, but we've got to change. Hmm. What do you think?
1: I think it's beautiful. Well done. Applause for Vaughn. You're getting applause, Vaughn.
3: Thank you very much. Talk keep, to later.
1: keep writing. Bye-bye. Article, I didn't take it from the Trib, but it showed up in the Trib, Charlotte News, uh, North Carolina newspaper, the Huffington Post, online and off. Mormon founder had teen bride during polygamy days issued by the LDS church. Uh, first of all, the, the title of the article is misleading. Mormon founder had teen bride, actually several. And, uh, and, and all I'm doing here is just keeping the task at hand because inroads have been made. And the task has to be said, uh, you, the task is to make sure things are clear. These things are great advances, in my opinion, of how God is going to work to bring down uh, Mormon doctrine and theology that is false. And hopefully retain, let them retain the stuff that's good. But you have to read through the lines. This says, Salt Lake City the Mormon Church acknowledges in a new essay that founder Joseph Smith had a teenage bride and was married to other men's wives, during the faith's early polygamous days, a recognition of an unflattering part of the roots that historians have for, chronicled for years. That's They don't have a choice. The advent of the internet and, and people who have gone to reach out and show, they don't have a choice now. Uh, anybody who grew up in the church knows that if you heard this when you were growing up, it would have knocked your socks off. So uh, you know, the LDS Church says that most of Smith's wives were between 20 and 40. By saying that, they're not including the other teens and some who are older than 40. One of them, however, was a 14-year-old girl who was the daughter of Smith's close friends. Others, uh, and then it says, the essay posted this week on the church's website marked the first time the Salt Lake City-based religion has officially acknowledged those facts. This is remarkable stuff. It is going to cause people who are thinking of joining the church To take a step back. It's going to cause people who are in the church to say, really? And then they'll go and look and see what all the facts are, and not just this one teenager that they're talking about. Uh, The article mentions that many of these things that are being brought forth in recent push are difficult and uncomfortable to discuss. Yeah, that's true, like blacks in the priesthood, things like that. The new article about Smith's wives during the 1830s and 40s in Kirtland, Ohio and Nauvoo, Illinois, comes about 10 months after the church acknowledged polygamy was widely accepted among its members in the late 19th century. Now, if you grew up LDS, you know that we always said as a missionary we would teach, oh, very few people practiced it. Baloney, baby, and the top were the ones who were practicing it. And it was expected by anybody who was gonna come up to practice it too. Now, uh, and then it says Mormons don't practice polygamy today. That's just not true. It's not true. And, and, And what it does, they practice it spiritually. And they believe it spiritually. And so the practice is as valid to them spiritually as it is in, in the flesh. They're just they're waiting for the time for it to come back in. And, and so it's not fair that they use that because it's simply not true. Latter-day Saints began practicing polygamy after Smith received a revelation from God. Maybe it was the same revelator that told me about uh, Satan being bound up. He took his plural wife in 1830 in Ohio three years after marrying his first wife, Emma. And what people don't know is that Emma did not know about almost every single one. And the ones she did know about, she tried for a couple weeks and then pushed them to the curb. Uh, The essay noted that while inappropriate by today's standard, marriage among teen girls was legal and somewhat common during that time. True. Absolutely true. But the problem is, is the way Joseph and Brigham did it, and we have evidence from history, is that they... um, They said God told them that they had to do it. That's different than marrying a girl that's that's uh, 14 and you're 17. My dad was 17. My mom was 13 when they got married, and so young. That that's that's fine. That's happened, but not when you have a 30-year-old or a late guy in his late 20s going to a 14-year-old or somebody that young and saying an angel will strike me dead if you don't marry me. There's a difference in that, and that should be pointed out so that we can have complete clarity. And openness on the subject so people can then freely choose about what they're going to do. Be informed. They're still hedging on it. And that is so troubling. You know, you would think, let's just come clean. It's like, (laughs) to come clean is so good, so refreshing, it's not happening. Then they say, research has indicated that Smith's marriage to the young girl might not have involved sex. And they say that about some of the other marriages that he had to women who were already married to other men, that those might not have involved sex. Why not? I mean, if you're married to them, why wouldn't it involve sex? What's the problem? If it's real marriage, so why justify it by saying they may not have done it? You know, so what if they did it? They're married, aren't they? So I, I don't understand that, that, that approach. It's like it was more holy, this type of marriage. They didn't consummate. And, and uh, really troubling in that way. Um, little is known about Swiss marriages to already married women. Again, not, might not have happened. Difficult as it is, listen to this last line. The introduction of plural marriage in Nauvoo did indeed raise up seed unto God, the article says. A substantial number of uh, today's members descend through faithful Latter-day Saints who practice plural marriage. So in the end, they say it was God behind it. It raised up a seed unto God. And many of the people in the church today are the descendants of faithful members who practiced it. There's still a defense. And so while I applaud the fact that they're trying to be transparent in a day and age of the Internet, uh, it's really troubling that true transparency does not exist Yet. All right, we have something here online. Uh, Hi, Sean. Last week, you said that the chosen 144,000 were Christian Jews, but were they virgin as Revelation says? What meant with the virgin Revelation 12? Also, would you, who would be the great whore in Revelation 17 1? Okay, I'm going to just admit it right now. I cannot understand Revelation. I can see it from a, a view of it just being a recitation of the history of the early church. I can see it as being a fulfillment of certain prophecies in Daniel and Ezekiel. I can see it as being beyond the scope of understanding. And I can see it uh, in, in a preterist way. I can see it in a pre-trib way. I can see it in a fut- futurist way. All of that. I'm not even sure. This is so... I'm not sure if there was ever a book that I wish might not have been included in the canon. It would have been that one. <laughs> but I know it has a purpose. And so, but I can't understand it. And so I'm not going to try. I, I, just, I don't have the intelligence. I just believe that if we look at the first book of Revelation and the last book, the first book says it was written to the churches. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And the last book says he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Get ready. And everything in between, I don't understand much of it. Robert in Clearwater, Florida on line one. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Good evening, How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Hey, um, I I know we're quick on
3: time. So, my question actually, I have two of them. Maybe we can get to both of them. But my first question would be um, someone reading the Old Testament, say, in 100, 200 BC, how would they know uh, which were messianic prophecies? Um, you know, there are so many in there, and, uh, you know, how, how, how would one come about that and saying, okay, this is a Messianic prophecy, or this is a prophecy that had an immediate fulfillment or a future fulfillment, and many theologians believe that prophecies have a dual fulfillment. Um, you know, maybe kind of what you're speaking of, uh, you know, for the last few weeks of, it had a fulfillment in their time, and it has a fulfillment in our time. What's, what's the witness best for that?
1: You know, I, that is a, a really good question. And I don't know the answer, but I would suspect we could find the answer. There's, I wish I had the site on, in front of me uh, where Jewish rabbis go back and they quote what the rabbis have always taught about passages and why. And I would bet that we could figure out from that why they would assume some passages were messianic and some were not. So that's the best answer I can give. I don't know the answer to it, but it's a good one to, to search out and try to find.
3: Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and the, my, my second question escapes me at the moment.
1: Um, well, call, call back, because our phone lines are not like they used to be, and we're, we're open, and let's just keep talking. That's a great question, though, Robert. All
3: right. Great. Thank you, Sean.
1: Thanks, my brother. Bye-bye. From Tim in, in Pampa, Texas. Pampa. I enjoy the show, but I have one question to ask you. If Satan being bound means he has no more power over death now, did he have power over death in the Old Testament? The power in the Old Testament, he surely would have liked to kill people. Uh, what kept it, like Elijah, David, and Daniel, what kept him from it? The power of death does, does not mean that uh, he can take life. That was in God's hands, if we remember Job. It means that when someone died, they were in Sheol. And they were either, they they did not have access to God, even in the paradise part. So he had the power and control over death. And that's why Paul says, oh, death, where is thy sting? Because Christ had the victory, and so that sting is not there anymore. So while we do die, we all experience death. Resurrection is for all. And I believe in the coming weeks, we're going to show how reconciliation would be for all too. And Satan does not have power over that either. That's going to be a big topic as we get into it. I hope that helped. Uh, one, no, I'm not going to cover that. One last thing. I've got a bunch of emails. I'm sorry. Some of them are really, really good. Uh, well, let me just close it up with this. Because the LDS Church is guilty of a history of polygamy and some of their doctrines, they're under the guise of a man who created a number of things, um, all the churches are. And I'm, I'm not saying that Christian, good Bible teaching Christian churches can't be trusted. I'm just saying that uh, if we focus on picking on them for their history constantly, we never ever really get to, to the like Nietzsche said, so many hack at the uh, uh, branches of a problem, few strike to the root the root of the problem is not going to be pointing out how many wives Joseph had or how old they were. The root of the problem is, do they know Christ? And so we're going to get a lot further, and I know this is a change, but we're going to get a lot further by bringing Christ in and talking about that element of the Mormon Christian debate in the same way we would talk about anybody else of any faith. Bring Christ in, let his light, let him do the work, let God bring the light in, We can talk about those other things. We can talk about Martin Luther and his vitriolic anti-Semitism. We can talk about uh, the Inquisitions as much as we talk about Mountain Meadows Massacre. No one likes to hear that from the other side. Oh, no, 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 let's just, so we all have guilt. We have skeletons in the closet. The question is how are we going to reach individuals who ultimately will help bring down the empires? That's the goal. Individuals who will collectively love the Lord they eschew religious fundamentalism and they have a relationship with Christ to help bring down the empires. That's the goal. So let's continue to pursue it as we continue on next week. We'll see you here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on a ride going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's waiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light fill i start